Hello and welcome to Craft Path, a production of Harvest Insights, where we explore the art and science of perfecting one's craft. We meet with the makers and advisors of products and services in the food and beverage world and beyond, and those noted and respected for their trade. I'm your host, Mark Juhas, on this journey of discovery. Let's get exploring together on Craft Path. Welcome back to another episode of Craft Path. This week, we have a great show. We're honored to have on the show uh, for this week, Andrew Heinzman, who is the managing partner and co-founder of Investeco. Investeco is a venture capital fund based here in Toronto, Canada, that's focused on investing in high growth North American companies that promote health and sustainability in the food and agricultural sector. Uh, Andrew and I discuss his heritage, including his, his ancestor, Theodore Heinzman, who actually came to Toronto back in the 19th century and founded the famous Heinzman Piano uh, Company that has been uh, making pianos for well well over a century now and uh, is, is a famous uh, one of the was one of the largest manufacturers in the city of Toronto uh, back in the 19th century and that is now in many households across Canada around the world pianos. So with that, we also talk about Andrew's uh, initial foray into publishing. In the 90s, uh, Andrew ran a really cool magazine called Shift Magazine with uh, his co-founder of that magazine, Evan Solomon. And uh, it used to be a really interesting magazine. So he discusses a little bit about that. And then uh, an inspiration that he had in reading the book by Paul Hawkins, The Ecology of Commerce, that led him to co-founding Investeco in the early 2000s. And Investeco has been an important part of, of supporting the growth of healthy food brands that we've come to know quite well in Canada and outside of Canada. Investeco has investments as well in uh, American brands. But here in Canada, we have a well-known organic meadow and organic milk, uh, fluid milk company, Soul Cuisine and Row Farms are also in the Investeco portfolio. What's interesting, we talk, uh, Andrew and I, about the state of venture capital and, and, and private financing and private equity today in Canada and how some of that financing could be evolved or innovated to, to allow for even better support for the startup early stage and growth stages of these food brands. And Andrew was calling us from the Natural Products Expo West show in Anaheim, California. Some consider this the Super Bowl of the food industry, and there's literally tens of thousands of people coming to show their CPG products in the food and beverage sector. So Andrew gives us some uh, perspectives on what he's what he's seeing there at the show. So it makes for a definitely an interesting, uh, eye-opening uh, discussion taking a pulse on where we're at with promoting uh, these food brands and how they evolve and how they're evolving and the challenges and opportunities that exist. So give us a like on the podcast platform that you listen to. Craft Path is on Simplecast and on Apple uh, Podcasts, Spotify, Google and Amazon. And uh, send us as well in recommendations if you have for a new guest for the show. But without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Andrew Heinzman. So hello, welcome back to Craft Path, everyone. And I'm uh, happy and honored to have with me on the show this week. Uh, our guest is uh, Andrew Heinzman, who I've known for many years. And he is the managing partner and the founder, I believe, of Investico. So uh, welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Right on. 
So, um, well, there's many uh, interesting things that we'll talk about and learn about Investico and about your background. Um, like I mentioned, I, I think we were we were just I, I was doing the math. I, I wrote a, a chapter for a book that you published, right, Andrew? We were saying you and uh, Evan Solomon. I think it was 2004. Does that sound right? Yes, um, that, that may well have been. It was around then. You're right, 2004, 2005. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's when that's when I think we met when the book was called feeding the future and it was published by house of Anansi press. And so I, I came down to, to see Andrew at uh, the building. I think you're still at in the, down in the, uh, by the St. Lawrence market, right on the Esplanade, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We're still there. Yeah. And so that's a, a book that uh, people can look up. I'll probably provide in the show notes, but it, it has various authors um, and it was, you know, just again, sort of coming together on, on this topic around food and sustainability and agriculture that I think we've, we've both been interested in for many years. Um, but if you would, uh, maybe uh, before we get into the specifics of Investico, um, could you tell us a bit about your, your background and um, what sort of led you to where you are, you know, but just a bit of the, the, the seed of, of ideas and sort of growing up in, I guess, in Toronto and your family and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Uh, happy to. So I, I grew up in Toronto, as you said. Um, my family um, was a, uh, originally a piano manufacturing family that had come from uh, Germany. My I think my great-great-grandfather named Theodore Heinzmann, who's, uh, that's also the name of my son, but he came in the 1850s and began a piano company that ended up being quite a large company. I think at the turn of the previous century it was the largest manufacturing business in Toronto and they made pianos uh, from a factory in the junction that went all across Canada and um, so that was kind of that was kind of the heritage my part of the family had sold out of the business by the but really actually by the time I was born my grandfather had been uh, active but then sold it to the other other parts of the family but that was kind of our, our heritage which was kind of an interesting one and then I um, when I went off to university at McGill and spent a number of years there. And then after just at the end of my master's uh, thesis in English, um, my friend Evan Solomon, who you mentioned already, and I um, hatched up a, an idea for a magazine um, in, on a, a night of, of uh, bar hopping on San Lorraine. <laughs> We came up with this uh, this idea for a magazine, and we ended up coming back to Toronto and starting it. It was called Shift Magazine. We ran that for a bunch of years. Yeah, um, that was a real adventure. Yeah, that's right. And I and you know, speaking of just craft, because it's interesting. Just now thinking about this as well, that because I know for the listeners, Andrew, that you are you're a musician as well. And then there you go with your great grandfather who was starting to make pianos, right? And so there is the musical and there's craft as well, because this show is primarily about food as a craft, but craft in, at large. And so there you go, craft as well, right? Yeah, no, it's true. I, and I do, I mean, music is uh, one of the big things in my life. And I've, I've always been uh, very involved in music, but you're right. It is, uh, uh, pianos are very much a craft. And I did get a, a sense of that, even though, um, my life i was never part of the company i kind of picked it up from my grandparents and the, and my um you know that that company had was a really interesting company and one of the you know had a number of patents on um making pianos mm -hmm. and they, they they were quite innovative actually and and uh um uh they did they did things 
differently. Um, so yeah, no, it's a cool, it's a cool heritage. You're right. Music is, is definitely part of it. So, so I started this magazine and it ended up kind of blossoming into, you know, we had a TV show and a website and we really did not know what we were doing. To be perfectly honest. I mean, we were first time business people and kind of winging it, but it was, it was a great adventure. We ended up selling a portion of it to Rogers communication um, along the way. And then ultimately we sold the business to a um, Montreal based um, businessman um, called Richard Sawinski, who, who was a technology um, entrepreneur and owned, owned a company called discrete logic. So we mm-hmm. sold this, this magazine, magazine media company to him. And I, I, I worked for him for a while. And then I left, um, actually spent one year in New York because we, we were launching the magazine in New York. I left uh, there and then I, I sort of started to think about what I wanted to do after. And I had this idea that sustainability, I really wanted to work in the field of sustainability. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would read a couple things. One was um, a Harvard Business Review article that, that was kind of making the argument that sustainability was a, was, you know, a massive business opportunity. And I never really seen it framed in that way before that that wasn't just a problem it was also a um you know a place of, of that where commerce was going to be important and uh and then i read a book called ecology of commerce by paul hawken that really yes i remember that book yeah yeah wonderful book and i in fact i i like that book so much I, um i ended up buying like multiple copies maybe like 30 copies and i actually randomly sent it to I sent one to, to Bill Gates, for example. I sent one to Paul Martin, the uh, finance minister at the right. time. I actually got a call, call back from his office. Uh, um, I was just trying to get the ideas out there that, you know, that that there was this big opportunity and, and the commerce had to be part of the reframing of redesign of our of our economy was, was critically important. So at the same time, I went and visited with my mint. And so I had this idea for an for a investment firm. They would invest in in um, pro sustainability assets. Let's say I yes. didn't I didn't quite I hadn't quite figured out exactly what that meant, but kind of it was a general idea. And I should say, part of the insight was at the time, if you looked at kind of green funds, uh, they tended to be, you know, they might hold like telcos and banks and insurance companies, and, and even even sometimes they would they would hold oil companies like. And and so they they didn't look that green, quite frankly. Mm, when you look mm-hmm, when you looked at mm-hmm. what they were actually holding, so I had this you know this thought that well there should be funds that really hold like actual green assets, you know things that are um, have have clear links just to sustainability drivers and such. And 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 you know really it was what they were doing was was the kind of negative screen kind of things where they were screening out you know, nuclear or alcohol or tobacco and that, that right. those were called green, fans, you know? So I went to visit with my mentor, um, in the media space, this guy, Michael DePoncier, um, Michael had been the owner of, uh, many, uh, Canadian magazines like Toronto life and, um, Canadian business and on and on and on. He was one of Canada's leading magazine entrepreneurs and he'd been kind of my mentor in the magazine world. And he was also the chairman of the world wildlife fund. So I, um, pitch this idea, you know, there should be a fund that invests in directly in, in, into uh, green companies. And he had the same idea. And, and um, 
already kind of Skunk Works project in his office. So he said, well, come join Key Media, Key Publishers, which was his holding company, mm -hmm. and let's try to figure this out. So that's what happened. I joined Key Publishers. A couple of years later, they sold the, their principal asset, Key Media, to St. Joseph's that um, with some of those proceeds, we helped to launch our first fund, but we, we also had to kind of raise some some other capital and we, we built a little team. My partner at my, my now um, co-managing partner, Alex joined um, Alex Chamberlain, who, who that's, that's a whole other story. Cause he was my, he was my camper at, at, at camp here in Ontario years before hadn't seen him for a long time, but he'd, he'd gone and gotten a lot of degrees since then. He was a lawyer and a CFA and MBA and, um, and he was kind of the right guy to work with us and another guy called Michael Curry. And then, so around 2002, we, we had our, we kind of had our idea. We'd raised our first fund, and then we headed off into uh, into investing. Um, and I'd I'll, I'll sort of bracket. We, there were really in two phases of our business. We we had a first phase in which we basically invested broadly across a whole bunch of sectors. Yes, and I I, I would kind of describe it as a bit of an R and D phase of our company. We were trying. We did we did I think ten or eleven investments across three very small funds and it included three uh, food companies, but that we invested in renewable energy and water technologies and. Yes, I remember. Yeah. And, 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 and it took, it took us like kind of 10 years to, to then basically at the end of that 10 years, we took stock of our portfolio and we said, you know, it's, we've got to, we got to really focus on one of these sectors and, and on reviewing what we'd done and where our strengths and skills were, we effectively decided it was the food um, sector that we were going to really go deep on. And so that was around 2011 or so. And then since then, we've done uh, a, a series of, of dedicated food funds, and we've really just been exclusively focused on the food, food space since That's then. That's right. And I think Organic Meadow was was there as part of it, right, on the on the radar, right? It was it was our first food mm -hmm. investment. Actually, we we made it in around two thousand and three or two thousand and four, and we did it. It was a quite an innovative investment for the listeners. Andrew, sorry to interrupt you. Um, organic Meadow is a a dairy, a organic dairy company based here, started here in Ontario, and it was probably more before any of the other brands that were around. Right? It was the first. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of the very first well-established organic brands in Canada, um, started by a co-op of dairy farmers, yes. and um, who were all basically farming organically, kind of on their own, and and really, I think, for for virtually no economic benefit, like they were just they just chosen chosen to farm that way for whatever personal reasons they had, and then eventually, kind of found each other and then started this this cooperative and they had they had received um an effectively an allowance from the dairy farmers ontario to have a sort of separate pool of entity um they they really were the kind of own, pretty much the only game in town for for organic fluid milk in ontario at least and um they were a decent size uh but was it was an innovative investment because it was a co-op and um so we had to kind of figure out how how to do that we actually we actually created a new structure like a new um for-profit um branded company branded milk company that was partly owned by the co-op and partly owned by us 
And um, so we created it. We created kind of created a new structure to effectively invest in a co-op or with a co-op. Um, and it was a good. It performed very well. That that company did. In 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 the four or five years we owned mm-hmm. it, it, it grew significantly. Became a became a good little business. And so that was one of the that was the very first uh, food investment we made. And it, and it became actually. Um, really kind of the pattern because it had some of the features it had, we replicated in our later investments. For example, um, the idea of, of, of having like a really distinct supply chain um, through, 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 uh, through a syndicate of farms was, was something we did again with Vital Farms, which is probably our most, most effective or most um, successful food investment we've, we've ever made. And, and also, Maple Hill Creamery in the U.S. Those those two had very similar business models as Organic Meadow, so it be, it was a it was a very critical investment for us. What does Vital Farms provide? What's their product or products? Yeah, they they, they innovated. Um, what what they, they they created a new category of eggs, which they describe as pasture raised, and yeah, um, for most people that that would it means something like a backyard. Um, uh, raised egg. It was basically their outdoor um, um, chickens with um, with with enough space. So they 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 define enough space. So it's 108 square feet per laying hen, okay. and um, and that allows you to have the room to uh, have the the birds be on grass and constantly moving and having fresh um, you know f- fresh. Uh, uh, diet, uh, not not a completely outdoor diet, but but a, a fair a fair bit of their diet comes from, you know, natural uh, their 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 natural behavior, um, and so 100, 108 square feet is like a vastly more than any of the other categories of of egg production that were in in place at the time, and that and 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 then they created this whole supply chain of of small family farms that were raising according to their protocols and getting getting um, uh, more money per per uh, per egg than 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 they would otherwise, and so it was a model that worked well for small family farms, and right they were able to charge to the customer a significant premium, um, and that company's that company grew like dramatically. So we came in, and I'm going to get my years a little wrong, but I think it was maybe 2013 or 2014, and. Mm. Um, and then in around 2020, 20 or 21, we took it public actually on NASDAQ and it was a, turned into a wow. big company and they, they've, they've gone on to grow even more. It's now uh, publicly listed. So the, the symbols VITL, Vital, uh, vital and you'll, you'll see it a publicly listed company now. Super interesting. I have a question that, uh, that is, um, you know, just the example of let's say organic milk or even even eggs is uh sort of the you know the what's that uh, from grad school the bell curve for the diffusion of innovations right there's the early adopters or the early implementers and then the majority starts taking it on and then it becomes a, a common or 
or sometimes you see the S curve, right? So that they're struggling to, uh, to get noticed and then they get noticed and then it becomes, and I guess in, in the case for, or cause I, I know organic uh, and milk as well too, like there was organic meadow and, you know, back in the, I guess the mid two thousands, probably they were the only one that you could buy. And then harmony came online, right. And groceries and at least in Ontario for the listeners, probably in other parts are it's different. Then Loblaws came out with its own. And I, I think there was a little bit of a shakeup there, what happened. And then there's now grass-fed yeah. dairy. So from a venture point of view and from an investor point of view, like I guess it's probably an important thinking that goes into where this trajectory is of a of a new innovation in a food product, you know, whether it's it's gonna be an alternative to something and or it's gonna have to have some sort of distinguishing character. And it's important as well, I guess, for the success of the business and the investment too, right? Yeah, no, for sure. That's that's right. And, you, you know, yeah, you don't really know, of course, like, I mean, when we, you know, you, you know, you can see it in retrospect, but it's a bit it's a bit harder to know, like when, when we when we invest in a vital farms, you know, it they were selling eggs for like four times what a conventional egg was. It was a significant difference in price. And it was an open question, you know, how many now. Part of what happens, you know, part of what drives that curve you're describing is is also the economics. So as they grew, they were able to be more efficient. And some of that reduction in pricing got passed on to the customer. And then that actually expands the number of customers who are willing to buy it. So you have this interesting interaction between, you know, just the 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 product itself and the attributes of the product, but also the the economics and 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 the pricing that, that that kind of flows through. So I mean, I think and I think that is pretty customary, which is you may you're gonna you know as you get as you get some uh, economic um, scale, you you know your pricing is going to come down a little bit, and therefore it opens up to a bigger market. Um, and and in in the U.S., um, it actually kind of comes along with with sort of distribution. Curve so typically we'll get you'll get the natural food stores and and you know and then eventually whole you know a, a retailer like Whole Foods might take it on and then once it gets proved out there um, then the larger um, supermarket chains will 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 kind of take it on so it also kind of fits uh, yeah a kind of distribution uh, uh, curve as well super interesting um, I. I'd like to ask, I have a big question as, as much that I, I think about as to ask your, your take on it, because, you know, speaking of like milk, right now that we're seeing as well, a lot of this animal versus plant-based proteins, whether it's milk or meats. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, brands that are wanting to now produce, whether cultured dairy or cultured meat or fermented fermented products right and so it's interesting as well so for your perspective andrew like i've i followed closely the impossible and beyond meets uh story and right and their valuations have gone up and down and maybe now a tiny bit up um and uh and just last week actually merit functional foods in winnipeg uh went into receivership and that was like tens of millions of dollars in investment. So that news is just hitting, right? And how to make sense of that. You know, there was a big investments in that. And I think, you know, there might be some some off takers of that uh, maybe um, that will happen. But all of these to say that there's these alternatives to animal-based proteins, right? And, and I think that 
it's yeah there's no easy way to so i don't know what it's a, a question there but what's your sense of all of that because that has a lot to do with money circling around and valuations and estimates and whatnot yeah yeah i think i think these things follow also this this curve i, I forget but it, let's call it um it's kind of like a hype curve a little bit so mm -hmm. what what you see is um let let like with 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 something like a beyond me so um you know, there, there's there were years of, of various versions of plant-based meat, but they were very small scale, just kind of like, um, you know, and 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 fairly fairly simple. Um, and then then you know, a company like Beyond Meat comes along with this big idea. It gets venture backed. Um, you know, Silicon Valley, like tons of money gets pumped in, and then it blows the barn doors open. <laughs> so like basically, they you know. They, they 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 made the the initial investors there just made a huge return and it's it's partly driven on like they've broken open the market and then partly on hype right so they're they get valued at like thirty times revenues or forty or something that's a little bit unsustainable um, and then they went public and then all you know everyone who came in um, you know their their positions are hugely valued and then that drives. Well, first of all, that that drives more money. So all of a sudden, they they go public. They have a huge um, amount of capital uh, invested in them, which they which they then throw into the market um, to drive their product. So they're and then what happens is then a, a huge number of mm -hmm. like well, I'll call them mm -hmm. copy cats, but others who who see this then then jump in, mm -hmm. and then you have this kind of proliferation of capital and new companies starting to to. Uh, replicate that success, and and all of that, of course, leads it leads eventually to uh, uh, the crash, the despair, because uh, it gets way ahead of what the customers are are. Um, you know, it, it 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 all this money is is it, it basically too much money gets invested in into into the phase, and then you have and you have a ton of competition, and 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 eventually it it, it kind of crashes, and that's what we've seen, and. And then the money dries up, and then a bunch of companies go out of business um, because there was there was too much hype. Mm. Uh, but eventually, it all settles yeah. down, right? Like, so I think we're now at the back end of that curve. So you know, a bunch of companies got. You mentioned one, but there was also like uh, the very good butcher, which went public and blah blah blah. They they've in a receivership, and you're starting to see companies failing. Um, but the the customers are there. It's just that they were never there quite where the hype was suggesting they were they would be but they were they were always there um there's also in this case there there was then some negative stories mm -hmm. about like beyond meat and and the the real nutritional value of it like the sodium count and whatnot or yeah i mean they're they're they're, they're highly processed products right they have um you know they have there's pros and cons to them so but, but on the downside of this slope everyone's writing about the cons right on the upside of the slope everyone's writing about the pros and only the pros and on the downside the cons and only the cons um and so the whole thing then kind of crashes and a bunch of people go to business and the money dries up and but at the end of it at the bottom there's a bunch of companies that actually are mm -hmm. decent companies and they have good yes. products and 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 they figured out how to run their businesses and it all settles down, and that's where I think we're kind of are right now. Is we're in the somewhere between the like the last bit of the collapse and the settling down phase, 
Um, and, and then when it settles down, you know, um, there'll be a handful of, of good companies remaining who will know, then have figured out how to run their business because they'll been through this, this huge gyration. Yeah. Um, and the customers will, will keep, will, will keep buying, you know, um, and the, the whole thing will then at some point it will, you know, the hype will start again, but the hype may start in another sector, uh, or part or segment. Yeah. It might it might not be right there again, but it, it's a it's a very common um, economic cycle that 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 goes through these these industries, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and it and it kind of follows the broader economic cycle because it's it's really a really about kind of capital chasing ideas in a, in a way. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I think it's also the uh, the astuteness of the team, like you know, the the the, the fund. That needs to sort of be attuned to that, and not not make it so that you're so over, you know, a- analytical that you can't act with some degree of gut instinct. But it's got to be, of course, in, you know, a combination of head and heart, and and the numbers and due diligence yeah. and all these things, you know. Yeah, and it's it's a bit hard. Like it's it's you know we made we've made a couple plant based meat. We made three plant based meat investments, and one we were. Um, let's say, let's call it fortunate to have sold at, at kind of a, in, in, in the high valuation day. So we did well there. The other two, the other two, we're just going to kind of wait, wait to cycle out a little bit. Like our, our goal is just to make sure that they're, uh, amongst the companies that end up being solid and well run and well managed at the end of this, this thing. And, and, you know, I kind of think they'll, they'll be just fine. Um, it, it, they just have to hold in there and, and really, really focus on the nuts and bolts of their business. Um, and it, it's a bit hard to totally avoid these, these waves. Like you kind of think you can sidestep them, but it's, it's easier said than done because um, there is, a you know, you, you, you don't really know where you are in the wave when you're in it, right? <laughs> like it's just, you don't know how. Big. Sometimes you wipe out, right? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you wipe out, but I'll, you know, you just got to ride, ride the, the wave. wave. It's not going to be perfect. Yeah. It's going to be froth, frothy. Yeah. Um, uh, one one of the things I remember a conversation we had a while uh, ago, Andrew and I. I always felt it was very intuitive of you. I think something to the effect, if you remember this, you said like there's a lot of heritage foods from around the world that um, are are healthy and just interesting. Like I guess maybe one that would come to mind is kombucha or like you know, different yogurts from kefir or, or, or healthy traditions. And I think you're saying like, there, there's, there's a lot of room there for bringing some of that to North America or what have you. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, um, a lot of people said, not, not just me, but is that these kind of traditional diets have, have real wisdom in them, right? Like, yes, that's the, yes. Diets where people have been eating the same way for, you know, hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's often something to that, you know? Um, and, and, uh, so I think, you know, and, and North America is a rel- relatively speaking, a new culture or it's a knitting together yes. of a lot of old cultures, but Kind of a knit. So yeah, I think there. I think there is, and we've seen it. You know, as you mentioned, a few examples where um, things have been brought. You know, new pro- new food ideas have been brought from a, a, an older culture into North America, and, and they've succeeded. And um, and I, I do think that's. Uh, I, and I and I'm you know in general, um, a lot of our ideas have been kind of 
well, even, even something like organic meadow is kind of like a very old idea in a way, like organic farming, organic dairy farming is, you know, um, predates the, the, the modern factory farming concepts, you know, and, and sort of, there's kind of like hearkening back to something that was, um, a good idea from, mm. from our heritage. And, and I think a lot of people think like eating, eating simply simple foods that are in heritage foods is a very kind of solid way of thinking about how, how, how to eat. Uh, yeah. So, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm just beginning to wrap my head around is, is the fascinating world of venture capital and the different stages at which, uh, financing support can come to the startup or the early growth or the entrepreneur from seed or even pre-seed and seed and series ABC and, and, and on, so on and so forth. So would you share a bit about like Investico, where it is in that space and what are some of the, the benefits and the challenges of, of various stages of series capital? Yeah. So we, we describe ourselves as, as uh, expansion and growth stage. So, and these terms are, are a little fungible, but in, in general, what we're looking to do is take a company that has proven it's got a viable commercial idea. So typically would have a few, a few million in, in commercial sales, annual sales, and expand it, um, you know, put the growth capital in the, that they need to, to really grow their business. So it could go from, you know, 5 million in annual revenues to 100 million in annual revenues, that kind of thing. Um, oh, and, and so we would, we would typically, you know, put in, let's say, somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 million, equity dollars, which they would then use to, to really expand the business. So that could be you know, marketing, it could be building a manufacturing mm-hmm. facility to get their, their costs down, um, whatever it takes to, to really grow the business. And then we would kind of go, go on that, that ride with them uh, over sort of seven or eight years, for example. And it, you know, if that company can grow its revenues 30 40 50 percent a year every year they can become yeah, a, yeah. A, a quite a big company and uh, and once they get to that stage where they may be you know 80 90 100 million in in annual revenues they're a very attractive well they have many options at that point typically they can um they'll, they'll be an attractive target for for acquisition if that's what they want to do they could probably refinance themselves and and buy buy us out um that's actually what happened in the case of organic meta where they they were able to get um low interest uh debt from a canadian bank and and buy our equity interest out or or they could go public like what we did with vital farms where we um uh took it public or or they could or they could find an investor there's a whole category of of kind of private investors who like to invest at a hundred million dollar company and then ride it to half a million or whatever it is there'd be another category of investor that would won't be interested in buying us out at that point. So if we can, you know, that stage from like, let's say five to 10 million to a mm. hundred million is where we, where we play. Um, now it's worth saying, um, unfortunately we don't do the really early stage stuff and that's, that's a really important stage. And, and I, it's worth saying for the Canadian listeners, it's one where Canada doesn't have as much capital, which is, is um, there's sort of a gap sometimes there, like the the, the early stage stuff, so the stuff that is kind of just starting up or only has you know you know less than a million in annual revenues. Um, there's not a lot of great. Um, we, get, we we get a ton of entrepreneurs coming to us, and they're they're a little early. We say, look, you know, looks good. 
you know, let's, let's keep talking on, and, and, you know, um, and they'll say, well, where should we go for mm. capital now? And, and I don't have great ideas to be honest, cause it's, it tends to be a little bit of government, a little bit of friends and family. There's not a lot of funds in, in Canada that do that earlier stage work. So that, that's a bit of a gap. And, and I always feel a little badly that we, that we aren't able to, but it's, it's a, it's quite yeah. a different yeah. risk, uh, return kind of, uh, thing so it's, it's just kind of not where where we've been focused so that was actually leading to my next question i guess to to ask you is you know the state of venture capital in canada so i guess we're just under 40 million as a population uh, you know it's it's easy to always say well oh look what they're doing in silicon valley and and you know in the u.s which is like 10 times or if not more of an economy than than canada's um you know, the obvious, you know, we maybe we could talk about Silicon Valley or all these clusters of venture capital. But then if you look at maybe like a country like Israel or maybe um, Switzerland or Germany or parts of Western Europe or Japan, they, they also have their own sort of venture capital ecosystems. And and I've heard this, you know, as well, a lot is like, you know, that the element of risk aversion in, in, in Canadian uh, financial culture, but also there is this infrastructure of government and government's part. So, where could be some some important sort of points where you think there could be some reform or innovation in, in venture capital for for Canada? Yeah, and I, I think you're you're right that it, you you have to kind of you know, I don't I, I I don't know this for sure, but but so what I'm about to say, but I think it's true, which is that these these countries that are very good at venture capital, it doesn't happen kind of or automatically. It, it usually is there's some kind of usually. Uh, involvement of, of or, you know, government organizing uh, the sector a bit. And, and now I should also say that some of those places, in particular the, U, the U.S., they are, there is sort of a culture of risk-taking mm. that's a bit um, more than, than we have in Canada. So we're, we're, we're a little bit um, more conservative, I think. But, but um, we're, one area where mm. I think there is a potential, um, and I've thought a little bit about it, and I've mentioned a few times, and usually – um, it seems that, that I, I get um, people sort of agree, which is the, I think that there could be a little bit more um, regulation of, of, a, of a sort put on the large mm. pension fund. So a lot of our capital in Canada is locked up in significantly, you know, very yes. huge, like, like, like on, on a world scale, there, there, there are some of the biggest pension funds, you know, the, Teachers, Omers, you know, Case, uh, Canada Pension Plan, uh, BCIMC. Huge. These are huge. These are monster organizations, and they're they're actually so big that they don't really want to invest in small Canadian companies, you know, because it's it's they're almost too big to to move the needle. They're looking for huge investments. I I've always thought that there may be a a way to. So, so sorry mm -hmm. to go back a little bit, and and again, I'm I'm not a pension expert, so um, I encourage your 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 uh, listeners to um, due diligence what I'm about to say. But I think it's true that if you go back to the 1980s or nine or early 90s, those pension funds were required to invest the majority of their capital in Canada. I think I might have been 75, percent and then that requirement was lifted. Um, and it wasn't replaced with anything. So all of a sudden they went from, you know, having to be mostly invested in Canada to there was no requirement to invest in Canada at all. Um, I've always wondered, well, what if 
a very small percent of their assets, like let's say mm -hmm. 2%, had to be invested in private Canadian companies or, or private companies in whatever domicile they're in. So maybe if it's Omer's, it's Ontario or BCIMC, BC. But I think that kind of thing might um, seriously unlock uh, th that those big pools yeah. of capital. Um, so that, that's, that's one idea. The other one that I think is kind of interesting that some of the, um, uh, this is true of BC and, and, uh, and I, I think of Nova Scotia, they have tax incentives for um, early stage private companies. So if you invest in, a, if you're a BC resident, you invest in a BC-based private company, you, you get a, a tax um, incentive. And I think that's true of Nova Scotia. So things like that, I think, can help. I mean, I mean then I think the other thing is just um, the, the, the Canadian government does does have a thing called the VCAP. So they are they are organizing venture capital. Mm -hmm. But I think there's probably more uh, that could be done from the federal level to direct mm -hmm. and organize capital, risk cap, um, in, in, and uh, have it deployed into, uh, in, you know, into v, either VC funds or, or or directly into into uh, early stage companies. It is, it is, yeah, and that's interesting about the pension funds too. I, I know that uh, in Norway they've they've done a, a really good job of their sovereign wealth fund that I think from their oil and or petroleum revenues in the fifties or sixties to make Norway one of the wealthiest countries per capita in the world. And I think over the last 50, 60 years they've turned that natural resource revenue into and they they invest hugely globally, but I think you know they they probably have a, a big team of managers and due diligence, and they've done a good job of making Norway on the map in that sense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think you know that's true. That that's been a very and actually, by the way, very um, innovative in, mm -hmm. in in a green sense too. Even though that came from uh, fossil fuels, they're putting a lot of pressure on their their um, investees to. Uh, decarbonize and stuff so that that's that's an interesting one in that one but yeah i think you know we've got these huge and and pretty successful pensions funds so i think i think if i was you know i think something has to be there's an opportunity maybe frame it that way for for them to be more active in um building you know the next generation of, of early stage companies and filling this gap um and, you know, and then and then there are there are some good programs that's worth mentioning. Like there are the programs like the um, the Shred program, which is a federal government program for innovation. Uh, I'm a big fan of that because the one hesitancy I have is sometimes government can yeah. can also muck up a industry if they're too prescriptive because they governments, as you know, are not very good at picking um, investments. Like the, you, you don't really want them. Uh, deciding where where money goes, so it's it's a little better to have programs that are a little less discriminate. Like the Shred program, basically, if you if you have an innovative product uh, in Canada, you you can you can probably get Shred financing right down to startups, and it pays a significant portion of the costs of of innovation. And I, I it's a big program, and and I've always thought that's a really great program, and I particularly like it because. You don't have bureaucrats choosing. It, it's basically, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to, you know, meet the criteria, and and you know, you can get finance. And I think that's 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 a really great program. Yeah, I think I've known. I, I I'll put it in the show notes. I think you you um, shred is uh, science or research and economic development or something like that. Yeah, 
That's right. S R ampersand E D is is the um, is the acronym, and I think you're right. It stands for science research and um, so I forget what the E is. Yeah. But. So uh, now a, a fun turn. So you are now in in uh, Anaheim, California, right? At the what's the show called? The big show called Andrew. It's called the Expo West um, show, um, and it's the largest um, gathering of natural food companies in North America. I think there's one in Europe that's pretty big too, but this is the biggest one here in North America. And it's I've heard it called the Super Bowl of the food industry, as somebody yeah, called it like that. <laughs> it's, it's huge. Yeah, I think there's almost 100,000 <laughs> people amazing. here. It's absolutely absolutely packed yeah so so please share with us um kind of and you you've had an eye on the the whole food world for such a long time now what what are you seeing um and i know these trade shows can be mentally exhausting there's such a mass world of it and you know you imagine down the the different aisles and everybody super enthusiastic about their things but what are some big stroke things you're you're feeling you're taking away or seeing Yeah, it's it's it is it is so big that it's almost hard to like you just you you you're a bit kind of um, bamboozled by the by the just the raw numbers. And to be honest, I've walked I walked yesterday all day long. I got twenty five thousand steps in, and I think I seen about twenty percent of the show. To be honest, with you. it's huge. Like so, and basically, my first day. We well, yesterday was the first day. I. I I've, I really tried to hit all of our um, portfolio companies first. So I, I really kind of spent the day trying to get to our, um, say hi to all our portfolio companies and, and see them. I mean, what you see, I mean, what I'm just, it, it, you know, there's a ton of, there's still a ton of plant, plant-based plant um, meat, product, although I'd, I'd say it's, it's kind of, um, it, it's kind of like there's a, I've noticed a lot of plant-based chicken, for example, which I think was was not the, the first wave tended to be, um, uh, you know, m- more like, you know, for the, the classic sort of mm-hmm. veggie burger type um, offering. And, and it seems to be, you know, pushing out into into more of there. And there were some pretty good plant-based plant-based chicken uh, um, companies. I, I tried their product. Uh there seems to be a lot around kind of energy, a lot around um, uh, protein, you know, v- various kind of protein supplements, or um, there seems to be a lot of, I mean, the one, the one thing that is kind of funny walking the show and what I always, a lot of companies doing similar things, to be honest, like what we kind of look for is something that is quite different, you know, that, that just, just has an idea that's, that's not, uh, that that's relatively unique, um, like the Vital Farms ones. For when we saw that, they were this was at the show. I went, you know, in 2014. I I think I saw them or 2013, and they were the only guys doing this this concept of past pasture raise. There was nothing else like it. So that that's kind of we're kind of looking for the needle in the haystack a bit. The thing that you go, oh, that's that's a cool idea. That's pretty different, and. Um, uh um so that that's that's real that's quite hard to find i'd say a fair number we're we're kind of intrigued by some mm-hmm. of the kelp offerings like the other thing is i look for things where there's a kind of a both a health and sustainability angle yes that that usually that that's kind of our mandate so if i can find the two together then i get excited so that that's kind of where we're poking around um 
there's a ton of bars as you can imagine uh here there's but but it, it's so big it's i yeah. find it difficult to pull out themes because it's there's just so like many different you know just slot, last you know? week uh there was news that came out and i and, and you know the, it, it creates a sensation in some people but the, uh, that erythrit as an artificial sweetener there was a study from natural medicine that it potentially could have an association with cardiovascular risk. And I know that there is sugar, right? Like this high, like a reduction of sugar or low sugar or no added sugar. Uh, sodium is a big issue, you know, the saturated fats. But 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 specific about this, the, the sweeteners and the alternative sweeteners seems to be that is always a big issue in that in the product, in the food product, is how it's dealing with sweeteners. But then you've got these this news that comes out and it kind of probably causes like little ripples throughout the system to sink. Yeah. So that's a really interesting issue. I've looked at this one actually a little bit because my, my office has been forwarding around things. So it's worth noting there were, there was that study that yeah. got, got a lot of pickup, but didn't really study whether people who are eating the, the erythrol um, have a problem because apparently, um, it's a naturally producing substance. Mm -hmm. So we have it in our body, regardless of whether we, and um, there was a really, because I, I read that news initially, I thought, oh, that's, that, that doesn't sound very good. But there was a really good 20 minute YouTube video sent mm -hmm. around that, that kind of broke it down where the guy said, it's not, you know, if you look one, one layer deeper, it, it's not clear that these people um, have that from eating it that rather uh, it may be just naturally produced and it may be naturally produced in cases where people have already have cardiovascular yes. problems. Yeah. So the association is very unclear. The study, the study did not really look at, look at that. So as, as, um, as is often the case, it's, it's kind of gets more complicated the more you look at it. And, and um, I think it's probably too early to, to draw any clear um, yeah. outcome or um, inferences. Um, the one thing I will say, there's a general statement, you know, I, I'm, there's really more a statement of personal interest. You know, I, I, I think like kind of the simpler, and this goes back to this, what we were saying earlier, the, 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 the heritage things that have been done for generations, you know, you, you don't have those concerns. So mm. um, the cleaner the deck and the, and the more, it, the more, you know, this probably is probably where personally where I where I mm -hmm. I um, gravitate to. But but that question, like like all like so many, is um, it is very much yeah. up in the air right now. So uh, well, we'll have to see. So Andrew, it's a real pleasure in to to um, have this conversation with you. I have one uh, big question, and it's sort of that I ask myself as well. Is let's see in the next half decade to decade, you know, we've got many good things happening in food innovation and exciting and people are thinking about health and wellness. And then we also have, you know, some serious uh, evidence of strain on ecosystems. And then we've got, you know, the food price inflation that people are dealing with the prices. Um, in, in, I guess in the next five to 10 years, what, what are things that you think will be important to address in, in food that isn't kind of already being and that where you'd like Investico to be part of that, I guess. Yeah, it's a really good question. Like I, like we, we view our, our investments as kind of like nudges. Like, like I think, um, or I, I, I gravitate away from like kind of 
thinking that we can solve yeah, everything okay. at once, right? Like it's, it's, you know, there's goods and bads. There's, there's, um, in general, like I think um, it's going to be a thousand small nudges rather than any one or two big measure. You know, we want to, in general, we want to move towards less processed foods. And in general, we want to, um, I, I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of, things like carbon pricing, you know, I, I, I think that um, mm-hmm. we want to price the externalities of things properly so that uh, farmers and producers have the financial incentive to do behave in the right way. Um, and I, I think that if carbon was priced properly, then I think that would, that would be a big um, move. I, I, I think there's, there's some, um, I, I think, I think we have to get at the packaging question oh interesting yeah the packaging like plastic packaging yeah like i mean i think as, as a world um you know and i it bugs me too even at this show you know you just see the amount of of packaging and and mm. and that that's a hard one to solve right now we need we need everyone we need consumers to worry about it we need governments yeah. to think about right you know regulating regulating we need the industry to lean into it yeah municipal municipal like recycling systems or whatnot you know, I, you know, I think, I think, I don't know where that starts. I think the industry has to lean in. I think, I think government have to start to think about, okay, how do we, how do we put constraints on mm. private enterprise so that they're forced to innovate? Like the, and it, it's similar to carbon pricing. I could go on a length of this, but I think when you, when you impose restrictions on, on economic actors, it, it, at first it looks like a cost, but ultimately, to be honest, I think, you know, there's this whole this whole thing called the innovation effect, which Michael Porter has mm. written about. You, by, by by putting that those limits on you, actually cr- cause the economic actors to innovate, and it actually ends up being hugely beneficial over time because they come up with new ideas that are that are better. So I think we have to like price things properly and and put the right regulation and in, in effect to to nudge these sectors towards. Um, sust- innovations that are more sustainable, and mm. that that's kind of a long term thing that 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 um, that we should all be encouraging. I think as 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 voters and as consumers, and and uh, uh, as we think about where the food system goes. Awesome. Well, I and I like it that you you mentioned about the packaging too. That's something that's super interesting that I find as well too. Uh, well, this has been a rich conversation. There's a lot. I think there's a lot of show notes that I could add too because there's a lot of tidbits and um, and uh, great to hear what you're seeing there on on the ground. Uh, there's uh, Seattle is coming up in in Toronto. I'll be at that too. So good. Awesome. But uh, okay. Well, thank you, Andrew. So. Thanks, Mark. Great to chat. <laughs> <laughs>